I know that Alabama was in the original forecast. Uh, they thought it would get it as a piece of it. It was supposed to go. Actually, we have a better map than that, which is going to be presented where we had many lines going directly, many models, each line being a model, and they were going directly through. And in all cases, Alabama was hit. I feel sorry for the president. And that is not the way we should feel about the most powerful figure in this country. The U.S. president has never before done a thing even remotely like what President Trump did tonight in the context of this storm. And so I don't even know what would count as relevant historical context here if I tried to make up that story. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. As some of you may remember, Anthony served as the White House Director of Communications from July 21st to July 31st. 2017. Depending on whether you count the 21st as a whole workday, you know how that's usually the day you like get your desk, see where the copier is. Anyway, that means it was uh, it was a short time. So he was a mayfly. And as a man who prides himself on his hot blood, his alpha male status, as he calls it, and his passion, Scaramucci would probably rather burn out than fade away. But it seems he's done neither. Having had a change of heart about Trump, whom he used to vociferously defend, Scaramucci is back making the rounds on cable TV, in op-ed pages, in the Hamptons, on his own podcast, on Twitter, and now on Trumpcast. So why have him on? Does this just amplify the voice of another blowhard Trumpite trying to extend his 15 minutes by seeing which way the wind is blowing? I mean, I wish I didn't have to address that. But listeners who know me know that I'm having him on the show because I love converts. Their stories are so strange and haunted and familiar and wretched and personal. Amazing Grace, the hymn, uses that great word wretch to denote the person who needs to be saved by grace. They're opposite words, wretch, little twisted word, grace, so open and forgiving. And in conversion narratives, you get to hear people wrestle with their own status as wretches. You get to hear why they changed. And you get to imagine a person, even a wretch like the rest of us, can change. Sometimes converts into religions and cults and converts out of them are detached from their experience. They don't know quite why they embraced Nexium or the Moonies or Scientology. But others can reflect deeply on what motivated them to override their consciences, forfeit their dignity, and join up, in this case, with a racist con like Donald Trump. Scaramucci is one of these. He talked to me about his working-class upbringing, his coke-addicted brother, his status anxiety and class anger, his fear that Trump's power became an aphrodisiac for him. He talked about his hope that he had pushed back here and there where possible. He talked about his humiliation in being fired. And he even talked about how his intoxication with Trump was so great that he missed the birth of his own son. If I ever had any doubts about having the mooch, On Trumpcast, I didn't while he was talking. He's a figure for so many Americans who, because of whatever their personal histories, their emotional and cognitive vulnerabilities, fell under Trump's spell. Better than that, he's a figure for how they can break free. 
For all it makes my head spin to think of anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear not despising Trump on sight, Scaramucci told me a plausible story about how a working-class kid who saw a shot at the big time might have hitched his wagon to Trump's star. And no, Scaramucci did not call bullshit on Trump or see him as a grave danger when most of us did, the 70s, 80s, 90s, or at least when he announced his campaign, which is what makes the story of Scaramucci so compelling. Because the way out of Trumpism is probably not going to be charted by Democrats and liberals. Rather, the way out of Trumpism may end up being charted by those who understand its allure so deeply that they once let it capture them. Joining me on the line is Anthony Scaramucci. All right, let's jump in. Anthony, you are such a virtuoso at your awesome arias. You know, you're like an Italian tenor talking about politics, fellatio, your recent change of heart. But I want to take Hold it on, down a notch. It was auto fellatio, but, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to no, make but sure the counting. podcast is accurate. But fellatio seems like a good word for a tenor. Like, doesn't it seem like fellatio? Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, I'm right? not really a tenor, though. I'm more of a baritone, but that's fine. Keep going. Okay, I want to get to the real Anthony. And it seems like part of you does, too. So the late, great James Gandolfini once told me that playing Tony Soprano was eating him up inside and one day would kill him. Yeah. And for you, it must have been hard playing a character in Trump world for so long. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, just remember what uh, Coco Chanel said. I tell my kids this. Coco Chanel said that you get the face that you deserve at 50. Mm-hmm. And so you got to just be yourself in life. Otherwise, you'll end up with a crooked and craggy face, you know? Yeah. I'm 55 years young. I yeah. tried to be myself every day when I wake up. I recommend that for everybody else. So, you know, in James Gadolfini's case, he's, he was a method actor and obviously brilliant at it. And that was a very tough job to play because Tony Soprano was obviously a super complex character. But I wasn't really playing a character. I applauded what President Trump as a candidate was doing. And I think I got overly biased. And I would say this to every one of your listeners. Three or four things happen to you. We're all human. You have confirmation bias. You have bias as a result of your upbringing. And then if you get close to power, guess what happens to you? Power is an aphrodisiac. And power can Mm -hmm. be corrupting. And so if you think you're above those natural forces, look at my life. Okay? Because I am not above those natural forces. And I fell prey to some of them in certain areas. So when I was out with the president, he was campaigning in areas of the country that were blighted and there was levels of economic desperation and these were working poor people. It was very reminiscent to the way I grew up. You know, my dad was a crane operator. Hmm. He then had a job as a payloader operator. He was in a local union. He was an hourly worker, Mm -hmm. never went to college. My mother was a housewife, but there were very high blue collar middle class wages back then. And those jobs don't exist anymore, Virginia. So so when he was out there talking about that and the restoration of that and providing mm-hmm. hope and opportunity for those people, even though I was a Scott Walker supporter and a Jeb Bush supporter, I was attracted to that. And so mm-hmm. secondarily, when he started saying things that were nonsensical and tweeting things that are nonsensical, what happens from a psychological pr- perspective is you go through a a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. You've bought the car, 
The car's not working super well, but damn it, you made that decision to buy the car. Yeah. You start adjusting yourself to the lemon side of the car. Yes. And so now I've been blown from the White House unceremoniously due to my auto fellatio comment, but Mm -hmm. we both know that that's not really true. It was more related to how much press I was getting. You know, the president doesn't like anybody in the room getting any level of attention. Like the kiss Mm -hmm. of death from President Trump is, hey, you're getting as famous as me, or Mm -hmm. you're getting more press than me. If he says that to you, you're getting blown out, you know, very quickly. And so that's why I got fired. No big deal. I didn't want to be a baby or a whiner after I got fired. Uh, The Charlottesville thing came up literally 10 days after I was fired. I spoke out against it. The uh, child separation policy was exposed. I spoke out against it. He was in Helsinki, again, trying to support the president, but I spoke out against the uh, repudiation of our intelligence agencies in front of the president of Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wrote an op-ed. You can find it at The Hill. Just go to hill.com. That the press is not the enemy of the people. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to stay loyal to him, but also not be a Trump apologist. And so mm-hmm. red letter things started happening. Crazier things started happening in my mind. Now, liberals, people on the left, people that dislike Trump or conservatives that were in the anti-Trump or never Trump movement, they could be justified in their criticism of me by saying, well, he hasn't really changed that much. He was like that. And so you're late to the party. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to accept that criticism. But what I would also say to those people, he is now an international danger. If he gets reelected and we go four more years of this nonsense, it'll have devastating consequences to the American alliance, Mm -hmm. the global Mm -hmm. trading system, and to how he perceives the world and how he's going to try to project that on the world. Trumpcast has been a very hospitable place to people like you who've had changes of heart. We've had Max Boot on here. We've had a former Trump troll on here. We've had people who've worked for Trump or worked with Trump and who have rethought it or have even rethought their Republican allegiance. And you do a very nice job. That cognitive dissonance of driving a car that keeps malfunctioning on you and you have to tell yourself, well, this is the way this BMW is supposed to drive or, you know, I'm just going to overlook this or this isn't so bad. You sort of gaslight yourself about it. No question. But he's yeah. gaslighting the country. And so what I said to Liz Smith, who's uh, Pete Buttigieg's comms director, I'm very impressed yeah. with uh, the mayor. He's got an amazing temperament, great uh, wealth of knowledge, unbelievably packed resume for age 37. Yeah. And I was watching him this morning on New Day, and I was, and he was expressing compassion for our deranged president who's mm. you know, taking a Sharpie to weather maps and saying that President Xi and Jerome Powell, who's a bigger enemy to the United States. And there's a litany of things that the president has done in his Trump noble meltdown over the last month. Yeah. And he was expressing compassion. Is Trump noble? That's Chernobyl? That's yeah, the new Chernobyl. suffix? Very nice. I said to Jonathan Swan, after my Bill Maher appearance, that this is a full-blown meltdown Mm-hmm. We're in the early episodes of the Chernobyl HBO miniseries. Yes. And where the, the reactor's melting, and now the apparatchiks, the bureaucrats around the reactor, have to now make a decision. Are we going to clean this up, mm-hmm. or are we going to cover it up? 
Yeah. My favorite part of that, and and I think it's relevant, is when the dosimeter, the the sort of Geiger counter, only went up to something like 6.5, meaning, and it had hit that height, but everyone, no one had ever seen anything higher before, so they didn't know how to react, and even the measures didn't go high enough. That's how I think about Nancy Pelosi right now. Her count, her metric, it doesn't go high enough for this particular disaster. But wait, I got to get to something about you. What about Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy? I mean, that's No, exactly. Right. And all the Jim Jordans, the hacks. They're responsible adults. Right. We're in a full-blown nervous breakdown. We're in a full-blown mental mania now from the president of the United States. I got to get back to you. The compromises that you made while you were driving this lemon car, the chief among them was the lying. And, you know, Sean Spicer, of course, has walked back at least the the whopper about the inauguration crowd that he told. And Michael Cohen has repented on his way to jail, of course, for of what he calls lion for Mr. Trump for at least a decade. I love how he says it, lion for Mr. Trump. And even Giuliani says he's worried now that his tombstone will say he lied for Donald Trump. How about you? Well, tell me where I lied for him, though, because I All right. know, and again, I'm not trying to live in denial uh, I only did one press conference. Go look at the press conference. I answered every one of those questions honestly. Okay, I'm going to give you a classic. This is going to be in Bartlett's. Yeah, good. Okay, do you know what it is? I'm not sure. The president is visibly infirm. He has a hard time walking upstairs. He's sluggish. His golf swing is weird. He can barely throw paper towels to suffering people in Puerto Rico. You say, I have seen this guy throw a dead spiral through a tire. I've seen him in Madison Square Garden with a top coat, standing in the key, hitting shots. I don't see this as a guy that's ever under siege. All right. Please tell me. Hold on me a second. I've what, also seen him d- sink putts uh, to win a golf match. And, and the point I was making. That was so wait during, a second. Do you, do second. you stand behind? Talk, do, talk do, me through I the process stand. of coming so up with you this. Gotta, you got to ask, ask Jim Kelly, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. Mm-hmm. And again, this is Trump from 20 years ago, mm-hmm. throwing that ball through the tire. Go ask him. Okay. And you got to ask people. I even think Spike Lee was there when Trump walked out with the top coat on and he shot the, and remember, this is when Trump was just a little bit of a lunatic, popular icon in New York City, you know, uh-huh. on the Howard Stern show. And we were at a, I think it was a Knicks Bulls game. Uh, and he hit the shot, not from the top of the key, but from the foul line with the top coat on. And so I didn't tell lies. I, the problem is there are no cell phones back then. And I'm not sure if there's recordations of this, but there were many people that saw that. You can ask Keith Schiller. So, OK, I will definitely ask Keith Schiller, get the Madison Square Garden tape, see the top coat, see him hitting free throws. No, but, not free um, throws. One shot. Uh-huh. From the foul line, they they pass him the ball, and he mm-hmm. hit the shot. But the but there was a metaphorical description going on there when they were asking me, uh, you know, can he handle pressure? Is he under siege? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I think this guy is not a gun waver. In the shootout in the OK Corral, the guy's not a gun waver. He knows how to hit the target. He is materially different, in my mind, from 2016, 2017, now in 2019. I have to go back to this because for all Trump calls the media fake news, I don't think I have ever seen him even request, much less get, a correction on a fact. 
It's crazy. When I was at the Times, I would get a you know a correction about when Destiny's Child broke up or something about Mary Tyler Moore's production company, you know, once a month. But Trump has never forced or asked for a correction. So I want to go just to the details as a former fact checker and say, I have seen this guy throw a dead spiral through a tire. First of all, I had to ask my former quarterback boyfriend what that even means. And he said that's a very challenging thing to do. So I want to ask you, where did you see it and how far away was he from the tire? And was it an ordinary car tire? Okay, again, ask Jim Kelly. Because he was also there with you? He was there. Okay. Okay, and ask him. And he threw the ball through the tire. And we were laughing and of course, Trump being Trump, he was very proud of himself with the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then secondarily, the shot at the at the uh, at Madison Square Garden, go to Keith Schiller, the president's yeah. bodyguard, ask former him, former bodyguard, former bodyguard. And so, you know, uh, you know, just ask those guys if those things happened, and yeah. uh, if they didn't happen, and I made them up or I ma- imagined them. I'll go for a neuropsych evaluation and then because I think the president needs one, I'm happy to go for one myself. But <laughs> but if, if you're if you're going through three years of my advocacy for the president and you're picking out that one thing and you're saying, Okay, hey Mooch, you were a liar on that one thing, okay, I actually don't think that that's fair and I don't think I was a liar and I'm supporting it with evidence. But if you okay. if you want to make a different indictment of me, which I think is a more accurate and fairer indictment. Hey, 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 Mooch, he was gaslighting you and he was gaslighting the country. Why did you allow that to happen to yourself? Yeah, that's how I see this. You were amplifying his idea of himself as always that's in superlative condition, in perfect, you know, able to throw a dead spiral through a tire. And I'm going to tell you something that's very ugly and very truthful, but also happens to be very human. And it should be a cautionary tale for every one of your listeners, okay? That question is a fair question, and that is a fair indictment. And I'm going to tell you something that I don't like about myself. Yep. I'm also going to suggest that it may be human, and it may be part and parcel of our human condition. When you're that close to power, and you're sitting in the White House, and you're in the press room behind the podium that says the White House, mm-hmm. and you're trying to curry favor with your boss, okay, you allow yourself to move the guardrails of your principles. Uh, How about that? And I am embarrassed about that. And I have to look at that honestly and objectively and say that to you front up and say it to Mm -hmm. you. But I also have to tell you, if it could happen to me, it maybe you're a better person than me. Maybe you're more moral. Maybe you're more principled. But maybe you've never been in that situation, and it may or may not happen to you. And this is one of the reasons why I recommend to people to read the Federalist Papers, because our founders were very worried about that. They were worried about the corruptive force of power and absolute power, and mm-hmm. that's why they diffused the system, Virginia. And mm-hmm. so all I'm saying to you is, if you think that happened to me, I'm willing to admit it. There are people inside the White House right now that that's happening to. They're either afraid to admit it. They don't want to be outed or humiliated by the admittance of it. Mm -hmm. They are in a siege mentality. They're in a Stockholm-like hostage syndrome crisis. Yeah. Or worse than that, you want to hear something worse than that? They're rationalizing. 
They're saying, yeah. well, if I wasn't here, this would be way worse than it is right now. Yeah, Trump's yeah. nuts, but, you know, I'm here saving the country. Yeah, that's what I've heard that Bill Barr says. He's either saving the country or the Republican Party. Okay, but you're not doing that, Bill. Okay, what you are doing is you're enabling madness, and we have somebody at the top of the food chain now that is mad. He's expressing yeah. mania and a full-blown nervous breakdown. And so, you know, I'm speaking the truth and you know, these guys are equivocating. And so if you say, well, what, what took you so long to speak the truth? I'm a human being. Right. You were drunk on power and we've all been there. I'm I, a I will say that human being is the answer. I will say you referred to my own, you know, sort of moral center fiber as something that would keep me away from it. I think it's more my vanity. I just can't imagine being under Trump's thumb. I hate truckling and I hate lying for other people. And I hate it just seems like a forfeiture of dignity that I'm so surprised that so yeah. many alpha males like yourself made. I ask this all the time. For some reason, you fell into this thing. It's almost like the Nexium cult or something. Like, why you? Why bar? Why all these people that I would not? You just you described yourself as an alpha male on your podcast recently. As someone so much as flirts with your wife, you like put his head oh, in the I'm toilet. Like a fucking alpha male of the third power. I, I shoved that guy's head in the toilet. I asked right. him so, five so, times. Right. So you're stop you're a tough with my guy. Wife. You're a tough guy. I had to you're give not, him Italian baptism. Oh, okay. I said stop flirting with her, otherwise yeah. you're going into the toilet. I flushed his head in the toilet only yeah. twice. And then I picked his head up out of the toilet. But so, you, you asked me a question, so can I answer it? Well, I'm actually, I, this is a bit of a wind-up because I want to say something that you and I do have in common, which is that eight years ago, I myself underwent a religious conversion and a wrenching personal change by admitting I was an alcoholic and getting sober. But okay. that followed a dark you. night of the soul where I literally felt twisted in knots for, you know, months beforehand. So I want to hear about how your conversion happened. And was it agonizing like mine? Or did it was it did you have a bright light moment? No, as I wrote in the Washington Post, I did not have a road to Damascus moment. And by the way, you know, I have a brother that uh, has suffered with addiction and I've got addiction issues in my family. And uh, I don't have substance addiction issues, but I obviously have workaholism addiction issues. So my heart mm -hmm. goes out to you for being so honest about it. And thank you. And I would also recommend to you, and I'll send you the link. I did a podcast with my brother about his cocaine addiction, about the struggle that we had growing up together, what the issues were in our family, and how we, you know, went in separate directions, but love each other, and how he went out of in and out of rehab four different times. And I would just recommend to people that are listening to your podcast that have these issues to listen to it because it's okay. It's okay. And it's okay to be honest about it. And it's very healing uh, to do what you did for yourself and what my brother has done for him for his self. But mm -hmm. you're, you're asking me the question. So I want to answer it by telling you the following. When you love the country and you grow up in a blue collar, rough and tumble environment, and mm -hmm. you get super lucky where, you know, you're born with a decent enough brain and you've got enough talent and hard work where you end up at the Harvard Law School and yeah. there's no legacy, there's no donation, there's no nothing. You just scrapped your way there and now you have to figure out a way to pay for it. And you pay off all your school debt, you go to Goldman, you build two successful businesses and someone who you liked, definitely liked him, not going to lie about that. Uh, and had a good relationship with 
goes on to become the president of the United States and asks you for help. And you have literally lived the American dream. You know, you're mm. employing 85 people, 10 billion under management. You've created some level of financial independence and security for a couple of generations of Scaramucci's, including my parents, hmm. who I have been subsidizing since I left law school. And now mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to affect policy, help the American people. Forgive me, but I was drawn to that. As a alpha male, a beta male, a seta male, a whatever you want to call it, I was like, hey, I have lived the American dream. I have the opportunity to serve the American president in the White House. And remember, yeah. my first job was to be the OPL director, which was to be the president's chief networking officer. I was like, okay, that's a good job for me. It's, it fits my skill set. Let me go do that. I'll help the country. So yeah. was that idealization? Was that stupidity? Was that naivete? I accept yeah. all of those things. But you have to remember, you know, I didn't grow up in a country club. I don't know how to hit a golf ball. I don't know how to hit a tennis ball. I couldn't yeah. go to my dad, Virginia, and say, hey, pops, what was it like in that rough and tumble corporate publicly owned company's boardroom? Right. He didn't know. He got up at 3.50 in the morning. The lunch pail was put in the refrigerator by my mom at 10 o'clock. He was at work at 5 o'clock in the morning, got home at 3.15 in the afternoon. Mm. Okay, and he worked his ass off, okay, outside in hot and cold weather for 45 years. And so, and he's a very good guy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, very hard worker, but I couldn't go to him and say, hey, Pops, what do you think? Right. And how about a few million dollars to launch my career? Or, or how yeah. about a call to Harvard? Well, well exactly. Um, but there no, were a few, and, and, were a few know, people that said to me, thing, don't go work for Trump. This is actually, I'm finding this kind of I mooch. I am I finding say? this very poignant. And I haven't heard you talk about this before. The class subject brings to mind the long history in American politics of a kind of Episcopalian Mayflower high hats. I'm thinking of Robert Mueller, Emmett Flood the Bushes, acting like they own the whole American joint. I don't know if you saw this movie, The Quiet American. A very waspy guy says, you know, the Jews have tradition, the Italians have their this, that everyone has their this. What do wasps have? And the character played by Matt Damon says, we have the United States of America and you're all just visiting, right? But there's a history of those wasps disdaining the so-called white ethnics. I've recently heard that. That's you and me, Italian and Irish, who come in to their spaces, to Harvard, to D.C. with coarse language, crude ways. They can't keep it together. You know, what do you have to say to that old guard who keeps saying, and I'm part of this, I'm always on Twitter, the Bush family say, who might see you and me and whoever else as a carnival act? That is that pure snobbery, or is there anything to say for more kind of propriety in politics? Oh, listen, I mean, you know, we're in a very different country than we were in 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and it's transforming exponentially today. And so what I would say to those people that by and large, they did a very good job. Uh, there was too much racism the introduction of the country with the original sin of slavery, all of those things we can look back through the prism of history and yeah. reflection of our current morals, and we can judge it. I choose not to do that. Um, I, tell, I tell young students when I'm speaking, if you've driven in a car or flown in a plane 300 years from now when they eventually clean up the environment and we're no longer burning fossil fuels, they'll look back on the period 1850 to 2150 and say, you guys were a bunch of disgusting pigs, and they'll start taking your statues down. Yes, so for yeah. For me, 
I don't want to go back or forward. What I want to say is where we are now. Uh, I use some crass language. I'm a neighborhood guy. I was trusting a reporter, and I uh, uh, and I said something regrettable. Uh, but I can tell you that I know members of the Bush family have used some four-letter words in their life. Trust me. And members of the Mueller family, I don't know them, but I guarantee that they've used some four-letter words. Maybe the Romneys haven't. I mean, I know them pretty well. They probably haven't, okay? But by and large, we're people. And what I would yeah. say to people that come from that Puritan wasp Presbyterian culture, that America, in order to last, be this lasting republic, be this lasting great experiment, uh, it has to adapt and it has to reframe its mosaic, reframe the woven nature of our tapestry. And one of the things that the president is doing is he's disunifying us, if that's yeah. even a word, okay? I'll be George W. Bush and make up some words on your podcast. <laughs> the country's first name is United. And at the end of the day, whether my parents were hit or called derogatory slang or my grandmother was told to go back to the country that she came from, she loved this country, and they love the country, and I'm enormously and passionately in love with the country because we were able to actualize here. We were able to find a niche, and we were able to live to our true dreams. We were able to find that aspiration, and this is the yeah. gift that this country has for people. But I will tell you something the system is broken. If you look at economic rent attribution, I'm a trained economist running mm -hmm. a lot of money. If you look at the balance between labor and capital distribution right now, it's 60 to capital, 40 to labor, but roughly. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's 50-50, Virginia, the country's very happy. When it goes awry and goes 60-40, you get this divide, you get this anxiety, you get this class envy, you get this wage crisis, you get this, you know, class crisis, if you will. And Teddy Roosevelt, who's the father of American progressivism, was a Republican. And he brought the robber barons to the White House as he was building the West Wing. Yeah. And he said, hey, guys, you got to knock this off. We need building codes and standards. He read Jacob Rees's book, The yeah. Dutch Journalists, How the Other Half Lived. The tenements were collapsing in East New York. He said, hey, guys, we got to cut this out. We yeah. may not like these people, and he signed legislation. My grandfather always said this about him. He didn't like them very much because he's, he signed legislation in 1904 that demarcated Italians as non-Caucasian for immigration mm -hmm. purposes. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather always brought that up, didn't like it. But one yeah. thing about Teddy Roosevelt, when you reflect back historically, he recognized that he had to create a system or a society where people were getting some sort of a fair deal. Henry mm -hmm. Ford Henry Ford was a racist. Henry Ford was loved by Adolf Hitler. Very flawed guy. But Henry Ford understood that he had to pay his workers enough money to be able to afford the car that they were producing, to be able to afford the home. And he yeah. said, I got to put their children in a good school system because yep. they won't come after me in my mansion with a pitchfork and a tiki torch. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's sort of the Schindler thing that your industrialists have interests and it, dry, it can end up 
affecting their politics. It Uh, is super important. So what I would say very simply to you and your listeners, we're in a crisis now. We may not have the same political views. We may be different on things. You'd be surprised at how close I am to you on social issues. Okay, I I am for gay marriage, a woman's rights, all of those things. Okay, but we may be different. But we have a national, an international crisis on our hands right now. And it's, to me, it's almost like a Pearl Harbor. Okay, we have to come together. Okay, and if there's a group of Republicans that want to hold on to power and they want to equivocate and gaslight and move the goalposts along with President Trump, I understand why they're doing it. I'm trying to open up and create an off-ramp for those people, Mm -hmm. and I'm praying that they're going to come off that ramp the way I did. With you talking about capital and labor, it sounds like your off-ramp might lead you into the arms of Bernie Sanders, at least Elizabeth Warren. No, because if you you can't do it top-down, we've proven through 150 years of failed socialist experimentation that you can't do it top-down. But what you can do is you go back to Roosevelt, uh, the second Roosevelt, Franklin, and you go to Eisenhower and you and you look at what they were trying to do, you can do it through the tax policy and social policy, incentivizing the free market to get there. So who's your candidate? Well, we have to see. I think we're still very early. I know that sounds crazy, but I, I believe that Donald Trump will not be the Republican nominee. I'm not saying that the current announced candidates against them will be, but I think he's in severe mental decline. And I think he is in, he's severely impaired at this point. Yeah. And I think that they're going to say, hey, you pitched five or six good innings. The ball's going over the backstop now. You got to take a powder because you can't put sentences together anymore. And the, and, 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 and you're, you've created a fever now in the American system And we have to be good statesmen and be the immunological part of the system to remove you. Mm -hmm. And let's get you out of here on a high road. Uh, You don't have to have Mike Pence become president, but let's just tell people you're not running for reelection. If it's Joe Walsh and Pete Buttigieg, where are you? Well, if you remember, I did one press conference. I'm I'm still one up on Stephanie. Okay. But let me just say this to you. Okay. Okay. I, I, ne- I, I in that press conference, I didn't answer a hypothetical, and I, I reminded people that the first thing they teach you in law school is don't answer the hypothetical because you don't know, and it's too far away. But what I hope is you'll invite me on your podcast, and if that is to come to pass, and all those travails over the next 14 months happen, or six or eight months, then you and I will have an honest, analytical conversation as to where I am. I'm all about it. We will definitely do that. But I'm not Trump, Virginia. Because yeah. Trump is a systemic danger. He's a clear and present danger to the American system. He's disrupting the global trading system. He's disrupting the grand alliance that has kept the peace and led to this tremendous global prosperity. And he needs to be removed. This is not a personal thing. This is not, oh, he fired me. I tried to stay loyal to him for two years, Virginia. Yeah. It's not any of that. This is, we're now past the point where he can be saved and he can stay as the American president for four or five years. If that happens, if that happens, you're running too high a risk for the country. And so I'll be out there. I'm raising money in my pack. I'll be out there in the swing states campaigning and explaining the message that I'm sharing with you and your listeners today. 
And I'm grateful to you for that. When I underwent, you know, when I got sober, I had a lot of amends to make. I, you know, I had hurt a lot of people and, you know, it's part of the program of getting sober, you know, from your brother that you, you know, take responsibility for that. And, you know, going through, I think we saw Michael Cohen in his extraordinary test, second testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, really almost seek absolution from Elijah Cummings, you know, for what he had done and for aligning himself with, as he described Trump, a racist, a con man and a cheat. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it's the kind of get down on your knees and pray. I mean, he was sobbing. He he got tears in his eyes thinking about how he'd betrayed his Holocaust surviving family to back a racist. So now I want to talk to you about what your amends to your family might look like. I mean, you were, you know, Deirdre, your wife filed for divorce on the grounds that your ambition had gotten the most of you, that you'd chosen Trump over her. And, and most importantly, the podcast, it was a little more complicated than that, but that was a big part of it. You're right. And most importantly, and I know this is a painful topic, but, you know, Deirdre says you're both helicopter parents now, went to a whole day of kindergarten with your son, but you weren't a helicopter parent two years ago when you missed your baby's birth and stayed with Trump and not your wife during the delivery and wrote her a curt text. That's the kind of thing a drunk would do. I don't mean that you're doing drugs, but that's the kind of thing when you're just selfishly gunning it through your life, trying to get ahead and losing sight of the big picture. I mean, what is that amends to Deirdre going to look like? Okay, so but let, let's go back because a lot of that stuff is a lot of misinformation, unfortunately. And again, I'm not equivocating. I just want to lay out the facts. As an example, two weeks ago, Republican operatives dropped a story on me that I was at a Joe Biden fundraiser. I was not at a Joe Biden fundraiser. I was at a charity fundraiser for the Greek Orthodox Church. There were a thousand people there. Joe Biden came for three minutes to an accept an award for his deceased son. He spoke from the podium for three minutes. He was at a fundraiser, came to our charity event to speak for three minutes and left. And the Republican operatives put me at a Joe Biden fundraiser to try to make me look like a traitor or a Benedict Arnold to the Republican Party. Okay. In the situation that you're referring to two years ago, when President Trump told me, okay, we thought Priebus was going to resign. He's not. I'm going to fire him on Friday. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I know Reince Priebus. They're going to drop an oppo story on me that's going to obliterate me. And and you know Washington. He mm -hmm. was fired at 5.07 on the Bloomberg terminal. At 5.18, the New York Post opposition research story was dropped on me in its full glory. But when did Deirdre's water break? Well, let's talk about that. I was in... My, my baby, our baby, was born on July 24th, 2017. We were fighting. She had filed for divorce. There was an agreement that I was going to be at the baby's delivery. The baby was due on August 8th. When I got to the Boy Scout Jamboree, or whatever it was called, on Air Force One, we then took a 50-minute trip in a caravan and so, you know, that's with no traffic. So that was probably 90 minutes out with traffic to the Boy Scout Jamboree. I then got notification from Deirdre that her water was breaking and that she was going into delivery. Mm -hmm. I tried to get back to New York. That was completely left out of the story. I called NetJets. I called charter flights. You may know this, but there's a 60-mile ground stop around Air Force One. I did not know that, but I learned it on the day that my son was born. 
Okay. I couldn't get to an FBO or get back to New York in time for the delivery of the baby. That was never reported in the New York Post. What was reported was my blind ambition, my drunken you know, status, whatever you want to call it, uh, and all of that sort of definition. But there's a lot more texture to the story than the way it happened, okay? Let me, let me just finish two more sentences because you brought it up, yeah. okay? I love Deirdre. Deirdre loves me. You can listen to the podcast. It took great balls for her to fire the divorce cannonball over the transom of me. It took great balls. I admire her for it, okay? Uh, when, when I was in the White House, I was trying to figure out a way to reconcile with her. I was blown from the White House, and we began the process of reconciliation uh, shortly thereafter. And we've been working on it for the last two years. I think it's going well. You'd have to ask her. Invite her on your podcast. <laughs> Believe me, she's a very blunt lady, and she's very, very honest. But here's the, the point of the story. It wasn't just Trump. We had other personal things that we were dealing with between our parents and other things that were going on. And we were making a lot of mistakes. And so what I would also say to people listening to your podcast, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you think that relationship is perfect, please call me because you'll be the first person that I've met that has a perfect relationship with somebody else. And I would like to meet you to learn from you. But my relationship with Deirdre is far from perfect, but we love each other very much. And we reconciled. We have two beautiful children together and I have three adult children, and uh, and I think I've spent a good 30 minutes explaining to you that I'm a very flawed guy, but I'm a very passionate guy, and I'm a guy that really believes in trying my best to do the right thing, and it doesn't mean I've done the right thing at every turn in my life, but I own those mistakes in my marriage. I own yeah. those mistakes working for Trump, and when you ask me about what am I going to do to clean it up, well, yeah. the only thing I can do, Virginia is work on making sure that he's not reelected. And I'm going to do that with my personal money, mm -hmm. raising money, uh, articulating why he cannot be the president for the next four to five years. Yeah. I'm going to do that. And that must be a great, great consolation to Deirdre, who doesn't share your politics and objects to Trump. If that's not enough for people, then I'm yeah. sorry. Judge me the way you want to judge me. But just recognize that if you have this improbable life where you've grown up in a blue-collar neighborhood with blue-collar parents and you somehow manage to be in the White House for 11 seconds or 11 days and you build two successful businesses and, you know, you got a set of nuts on you, which you know I do because I have no problem going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. Not commenting on your nuts, but yeah. Okay, but you know I do, okay? And so it probably that's probably too self-serving. But if you're listening to my podcast, we had a sociologist on I told him my nuts were the size of grapefruits. He said, well, that's a sign of promiscuity. I said, no, no, I meant green peas in the Jolly Green Giant frozen <laughs> food section. But my point being is I've got no fear and I've got no problem going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. And I've got no problem explaining to people what the danger is. And I also have yeah. no problem explaining to people how I got in the soup with him and why it's so important if they're in the soup with him that it's okay to get out of the soup and to declare yourself on behalf of your family and on behalf of your country. All right. Before I let you go, as the life coaches say, what does personal success fulfillment 
look like for you right now? Like, let's say two years from now, after the election, what would make it seem like the Scaramucci life was really back on track? I think it already is. When I got blown from the White House, which was full-blown, you know, 15-stage humiliation globally, Mm -hmm. a lot of people called me to offer me help. And it was a very gratifying George Bailey sort of a thing for me. Mm. And I said to somebody in one of these interviews, it was like George Bailey. I hit my head on the on the uh, bridge. I was in an alternative universe for 11 days. I was like, man, I got to get back to my life. Uh-huh. And please, dear God, help me figure out a way to get back to my life. Did you and actually I, ask God for help? I ask God for help every single day. I'm a very yeah. faithful person. I was raised Roman Catholic. I... I'm not in love with the priest. We don't have to go into that in this podcast. But And, and no one ever molested me, thank God. I, I am a very faithful, very religious person. I ask God for help every single day. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, and so, so I am a very blessed guy because you have to think about where I was on July 31st, 2017, and think about where I am today in 2019. I'm so pleased to hear you sounding good and committed to your new path. And I hope you will come back to continue to document these changes in your life. I'll come back anytime. Okay, but I I, I do, you know, I know I'm being self-congratulatory here. I do think I'm an A-plus troller, by the way. I think I'm like, (laughs) I got to be up... I got to be in the major leagues of trolling at this point. All right. Well, have a run at me because I'm A plus in not feeding trolls. My guest has been Anthony Scaramucci, the director of communications for the White House in July of 2017. He has since had a change of heart and has devoted himself to fighting Trump and Trumpism. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? You know how to reach me. Come to Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then head on over to Slate Plus and become a member. Today's the day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're missing out on all sorts of perks. Digital swag, including ad-free and bonus episodes, discounts to our live shows, and bragging rights to your podcast-loving friends to let them know you're supporting all the journalism we do at Slate. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Max Savage Levinson and Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.